we're doing something a little different today. We've partnered with Hark Audio, a podcast curation app, to share some of our all-time favorite obsession show moments. Stay tuned to hear the fascinating stories behind the things we use, eat, and wear every day, from Google Docs to pasta and perfume to fish sticks. And if you listen on Hark, you can jump from each moment into a full episode. Try it at harkaudio.com obsession. That's harkaudio.com backslash obsession. From an Italian staple to a global sensation, how did pasta become so popular? Quartz's Annalisa Morelli looks at the way Barilla, Italy's biggest pasta maker, sold the world on an idea of noodles as central to the quintessential Italian lifestyle. They actually did some research on this, uh, which I thought was fascinating, and they found out that even compared to other types of foods that are equally easy to make and you know uh, versatile, pasta had a special appeal because it was associated with an Italian lifestyle, and so it became really popular kind of in the 60s and 70s, like when that was sort of aspirational. You know, so the idea of la dolce vita and like people, you know, living well and having, you know, lavish lunches with pasta and and all that was instrumental in the popularity. So there was an element of like it being aspirational and associated with good living that maybe other types of equally simple food uh, didn't have. Where does the marketing of pasta fit into that? Like you've mentioned Barilla. I also immediately think of Barilla when I think of pasta. Is that brand as synonymous with pasta everywhere in the world as it is in the U.S. and it sounds like also in Italy. Yeah, Barilla is the biggest uh, maker of pasta in the world, and it is associated with the pasta pretty much everywhere. Certainly in Italy, uh, Barilla kind of created an aspirational image of the Italian household for Italians. The ads that Barilla put out, they're really associated pasta with a specific image of like the Italian middle class. In the 80s, we had ads for Barilla that still would bring you to tears because they were these beautiful stories of families that were waiting for a gorgeous little kid could come home from school and the kid rescues a kitten and the pasta's getting ready and it's a little late and then the kid makes it home just in time with the little kitten. Dove c'è Barilla? C'è casa. It's this mythological idea of, you know, living in Italy that doesn't, never really existed. So Barilla sold the sort of image of the middle class Italian lifestyle to Italians and then also ultimately took a version of that and, and exported it out and sold mm-hmm. it to everyone else. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. I don't understand that commercial. Why would the kitten, what is the market there that like you could save a kitten in the time it takes to make it? No, it's more like wherever does Barilla, there's a home. And, you know, there were sort of like these vignettes into this idyllic families where everybody is young-ish and everyone is beautiful, creating this atmosphere. Another one is like, you know, this family where the dad is going away on a work trip and the little daughter slips a grain of pasta in his pocket. And so when he's away on work, he finds the pasta in a pocket and thinks about the girl, the little girl. It's just sort of like it's super emotional, but also very Italian, very Italian. And again, like I, I can't watch it without crying. I'm not alone. Like if you go on, on YouTube and you read the comment, 50 percent is people be like, I'm crying. It's very much what we are or what they made us believe we are. <laughs> Like, my immediate reaction is like, the house is messy and now there's pasta in your pocket or something. Like, I don't even know that I'd think my kid put it there. No, I don't think these commercials are for me. (laughs) I don't know. I think, I mean, they make you just want to be there and be them. You know, you want that happiness. From the sleeping bag puffer to Biggie's quote unquote bubble goose 
and Drake's iconic music video jacket in hotline bling, the puffer is an enduring fashion statement. Quartz's Alexandra Osla walks us through the garment's surprising evolution. You would have seen this, even if you didn't know you were seeing it. Even today, people love this coat. It's worn by celebrities like Elton John and Cher. The doorman at Studio 54 wore it, uh, Lady Gaga, Solange. Everyone's wearing the sleeping bag puffer. My favorite story is though, it's like whenever you encounter another person in a sleeping bag coat, it's like Volkswagen owners, and you're like instant friends, and you've got something in common. It's the biggest sorority fraternity. And the origin story is also pretty interesting. Norma Kamali was designer living in New York. She got divorced. She went on a camping trip with her friend. It was August, but it was getting kind of cold at night, and she had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. So she kind of draped her sleeping bag over her and went out into the woods to use the bathroom. And she's like, oh, this is pretty comfortable. I would like to wear this all of the time. And so she came back from that trip and I think she cut up a sleeping bag or like stitched two coats together and did some sort of magic and thus emerged the both stylish and extremely comfortable sleeping bag coat. And I want one. Describe it for me. It's like, very. is it what I'm picturing in my head, which is if a sleeping bag were a coat? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it has sleeves, um, which is important. There are hooded versions. I think that the first one or the traditional one is kind of mid-calf length, but they make shorter ones now. They make vests. But they've been making essentially the same design for almost 50 years. So there's definitely something to it. Okay, so we've got designer puffers as one element that gets them into the mainstream. What else is going on? Okay, so fast forward another 20 years or so, we have the next big puffer milestone. We have the North Face Nupsy. You know this coat, even if you haven't seen it in a while, I guess. Uh, It's kind of like black on top. And then there's, I think, maybe the traditional one has like blue and they have black and they have all different colors now. When you sort of picture the platonic ideal of a puffer coat that's kind of waist length, This is probably something like what you picture. But what you might not remember is that this was a huge deal in terms of the beginnings of streetwear in the 90s. Um, It was a really big deal with rappers, and it sort of rippled out from there. Uh, It was seen in lots of music videos. I believe Biggie, in at least one song, uh, one song he calls his puffer coat his bubble goose in 1993. I used to have the Trey Deuce and the Deuce Deuce in my bubble goose. Now I got the Mac in my knapsack, lounging black, smoking And in 1999, a different song, he literally references North Face. So this is a big deal. This is the one with, like, the Michelin Man roles, basically. Yes, Yeah, 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 yeah. I also feel like the 90s, we just had a very interesting relationship with proportion at that time. Like, all of our (laughs) clothes were either very, very large or very, very small. And the best outfit was some combination of very, very large and very, very small. So in that sense, like, it's a perfect moment for the puffer. (laughs) A very, very large proportionally out of, like, illogical code to emerge. It's a good point. And I don't know if you know, Kira, but the 90s are back. And I actually read this this fantastic, like, diatribe in the FT that's like, why does anyone wear a puffer? It just completely gets rid of your shape. It's just round. Who likes that? But who doesn't like that? There's something very freeing about it. Yeah, for sure. When you're wearing, like, a wool coat, you're like, is this an A-line? Does it accentuate? Mm -hmm. And with the puffer, you're like, I'm a marshmallow today, and that's the state of things. (laughs) Yep, exactly. I find myself going through a mental montage of all the places that I've seen puffer coats now. Like, I'm thinking of the Drake Hotline Bling video where that puffer was very highly memed. I truly don't know if I've ever seen Buster Rhymes not wearing a puffer coat. I feel like that's his default. What are other music videos where they show up? I want to go home and make, like, a YouTube playlist for myself. 
This is a highly incomplete list. But again, these started emerging kind of in the early 90s. Uh, One of the first music videos that I believe has puffers in it is Brandy's Baby video in 1994. She wears this bold two puffers. One is white and one is bubblegum pink. So that's 94. Uh, 97, just three years later, we have the iconic Missy Elliott Super Duper Fly video. Uh, her puffer is black and very shiny and very puffed. And, you know, there there have been comparisons in the past to puffers being like trash bags, especially black ones. And this, I would say, is the most trash bag looking one. <laughs> she puffs it out like a lot. It's inflated, though, right? It's inflated. Yeah. But it said to the world, I can look like a marshmallow and make it fashion. Yeah. Yeah. And make it super duper fly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Um, two years later, 1999, DMX, What's My Name, Burgundy Puffer, very like a wine tone. It's very, very nice, very rich color. Yeah, but the, the 2015 Hotline Bling is everywhere. You can't not <laughs> see that. Google Docs is not only part of the world's top productivity software, it has also significantly changed the way we work. And it's being used in ways that Google never expected. Quartz's Scott Nover dives into the innovative use cases for Google Docs and how it's become an unlikely tool of the resistance. What I'm hearing is that Docs is more transparent, it's more collaborative, uh, and it's more accessible, and it's largely free for casual users. So when you think about it like that, you can start to imagine some of the, the things that people could get up to there. But talk me through a few of the examples of how Google Docs is being used today, not for work and writing uh, amateur novels. Sure. I think there's a few really interesting use cases. First, it's kind of a social media for these kids that are going to school using these products. And there was a fascinating piece in The Atlantic a few years ago about how kids in schools are using the chat functions on Google Docs to kind of essentially pass notes uh, without you know folding up a post-it and throwing it across the room. Or if they were being watched, they would write in the Google Doc and then delete it in real time and just use it as kind of like a shared notepad. So that's, I think, fascinating. There's also a lot of like mass broadcasting that happens on Google Docs for political purposes or other sort of organizing purposes. You can make a Google Doc that is updated in real time and share it with the world. I saw a lot of that after the Black Lives Matter protest last summer in response to the killing of George Floyd. Um, There were a lot of resource documents and kind of calls to action and some other kind of, I I just saw Google Docs being used in innovative ways to get the word out in at kind of a time of crisis when information was changing, where the owners could send out this document and update it in real time educate people based on you know new uh, cases that they were looking at and things to be aware of. It, it was a really powerful tool at the time. And then I've also seen it as a really interesting union organizing space for workers who are trying to collaborate on, on what they want and what they want from their company. The only thing I would say is if you are trying to do that, make sure you're not logged into your workplace's account when you're doing that because that could spell trouble if they have access to that. It reminds me a little bit of, of Twitter, which I mean, we were talking about, launched in 2006. And this idea that sort of this text-based tool for social movements could be really powerful because you have scale uh, and you have the ability to be anonymous, which we'll talk a little bit more about. Uh, and you have pretty much easy access if you have an internet connection and that that can be this real force for good, as we saw in like the Arab Spring for Twitter. But also you hand over a lot of privacy and security and, and it can also be a force for bad, as we saw with everything on Twitter since then. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
there's so much good on the internet and there's so much good that free tools have given us. Um, there's a lot of problems with ad supported media and social media and, you know, name a social network and they have tons of issues. But the net effect of having a Twitter or a Google Doc, you know, be free is invaluable. And, and I think really democratizing in a way that we don't, that we used to talk a lot about last decade and not so much anymore. From wooden toes and ear trumpets to today's carbon fiber legs, humans have for thousands of years been improving and enhancing themselves with prosthetics. Quartz's Samanth Subramanian explores the evolution of prosthetics in history and what's ahead for the industry. So the earliest true prosthetic we know was this wooden big toe. It dates to around 1000 BC. It was found attached to the right foot of a mummified Egyptian woman who'd lost that big toe. And we don't know why she had it. One theory is that she had gangrene and it had to be amputated. But the big toe is so crucial to how we walk and maintain balance that there was a need for a prosthetic. And this must have been remarkably effective. So it was essentially just tied on to the remainder of the foot. And she would have sort of walked on that until the day she died. I feel like I'm just going to look at my big toe differently every day for the rest of my life. But what I really take away from this is that there is evidence of humans using some form of prosthetic for at least 3,000 years. This is going back millennia. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about this continuity of, of human need almost, you know, that our bodies are essentially frail, liable to break down, and that physical malfunctions happen and they've been with us forever. But around the time of this big toe, around 1000 BC, we see the, you know, the start, the rudiments of the human effort to overcome these malfunctions with things we can make with prosthetics. Are there any other examples of, let's call them prosthetics of historical significance, like prosthetics in history that we know of? Yeah, I mean, from these older periods, artificial limbs are usually the most common Herodotus, the Greek historian, had a story of a soldier who cut off his foot to escape his captors and who replaced it with a wooden foot. Uh, the Roman general Marcus Sergius had his right hand cut off in battle, so he had an iron prosthetic attached to his body in a way that it could hold a shield. Yep. It's not just limbs, right? Around the 17th century, people started using ear trumpets to hear better if they were hard of hearing. You know, in the 13th century, you have eyeglasses, uh, the kind you wear every morning of the kind I'm wearing now. But mostly prosthetics were replacement for limbs. They were made to look like limbs, like a leg or an arm. And they had some kind of rough functionality. Think of Long John Silver's peg leg or Captain Hook's, well, hook. Uh, they're kind of useful when there's no arm or leg there at all. But they're very basic in the physicality of how they function. When did we start to see less basic prosthetics and prosthetics more like those that we see today? Like what started the next era of prosthetics? Well, with the caveat that maybe any so-called start to an era is probably going to be entirely arbitrary, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to say that the age of prosthetic enhancement started on a lake in Arizona in the summer of 1976. And so that day, there was a guy named Van Phillips. He was a 21-year-old student at the University of Arizona at the time. And he was water skiing when a really terrible accident happened. A passing motorboat cut off his left leg six inches below the knee. And he had to wear a clumsy prosthetic, which he described as a pink foot attached to an aluminum tube. 
But Phillips was so sort of discontent and dissatisfied with this that he became a biomechanical engineer himself and he started trying to design a better leg. And that was really the pivot or the start of a new era. A couple of things happen in the 1980s when Van Phillips and a few others are working in this field. So one is that materials start to get a lot more sophisticated. You know, the aerospace industry in particular had these refined carbon fiber composites, and they were making lighter and stronger materials out of carbon fiber. And Van Phillips came up with this idea that a prosthetic foot didn't have to look like a human foot. So instead, he looked to the shape of a, a cheetah's hind leg, to that curved sort of L shape uh, that you can see on the back of a cheetah. And so when the animal lands on the ground at 50 miles an hour, Philip said in one interview, that long tendon is being stretched like a catapult. It's the long tendinous fibers that propel the animal forward. So this was really his, his big insight. The, the foot he designed, which he called the flex foot, that was really the precursor to the kinds of prosthetics we see now, for example, in the Paralympics. It's the kind that Oscar Pistorius, the Blade Runner wore. And the reason we can start to talk about it as enhancement rather than just replacement is because of how advanced these prosthetics have become. So there's a company called Osser in Iceland, which is also incidentally founded by a guy who lost part of his leg when he was young. Uh, they've been around for 50 years now. They make so many of these prosthetics that you see at the Paralympics, uh, these running blades that are made out of really thin layers of carbon, all sandwiched and compressed together. And they test it so thoroughly. I mean, the one statistic that I have for this podcast is that every running blade goes through two million cycles of tests. And each test is with a 300 kilogram weight on top of the blade. So it's the equivalent of running a marathon a week for a year. That's the kind of stringency in testing that you see now in the prosthetic field. Invented in the 1950s, fish sticks were once the solution to a problem created by technology. Too much fish. 70 years later, they may help us solve yet another problem, seafood sustainability. Quartz's Liz Weber explores how surprisingly sustainable fish sticks actually are. So I want to talk a little bit about the environmental aspect of fish sticks. I generally think of packaged foods or even frozen foods as bad for the environment, um, which is maybe my own ignorance. But in this case, it, it seems like fish sticks actually have like a little bit of an opportunity or are not as bad as I might think. Are they more sustainable, let's say, than some other meat options? Obviously, as with anything involving sustainability, the answer is it's complicated. But looking at where the fish comes from that goes into fish sticks, a lot of it is Alaskan pollock or you know some other similar species. And those fisheries tend to be very sustainable. You know, a lot of fish stick brands actually have sought out a sustainability certification of some kind, whether it's the Marine Stewardship Council or something else. Frosta, that German brand, actually stopped making fish fingers for almost 10 years because they couldn't source enough MSC-certified fish, and they only recently restarted in 2014. So it's certainly something that the food companies are thinking about. At the same time, there was a study that came out a couple of years ago that said, yes, the fisheries are sustainable, but that's not the only thing that goes into making fish sticks. You have to look at the entire supply chain. So after the fish are caught and you know frozen into the giant bricks of fish, they are put on cargo ships that are these gas-guzzling ships 
fish that's caught off of Alaska a lot of times goes to China first to be processed and then is sent back to the U.S. where it ends up on trucks to, that go out to the supermarket. So that part of it adds significant amount of carbon emissions. And so you have to think about the entire supply chain when looking at any product. So it's complicated. It is always complicated. I just I want it I want it to be as simple as a fish stick seems. But so it's, it sounds like from a sourcing perspective, fish sticks are relatively sustainable or there are there are ways to make them sustainable and then from a supply chain perspective, it's complicated. Exactly. So thinking about other types of fish that you might get from the fish counter or from a restaurant that are overfished or they're fished illegally, fish sticks have really got a leg up on those. With more detail than you ever knew you needed, Quartz's Aurora Almondral dives into the sourcing behind ambergris, a waste product of whales, and oud, a kind of tree mold. These rare substances are just a few of the ingredients that find their way through complex supply chains into the world's perfumes. Okay, so a supply chain, you know, for, for a purse or something, you have a cow, the cow is skinned, you tan the hide, and it's pretty straightforward. And and you can control it, right? Like you control the amount of cows that you raise and how many of the skins you tan. But ambergris, for centuries, it was something that people were finding on the beach, but they didn't know where it came from. And then eventually people come to find out that it's related to whales. I guess there was a serious period of whale hunting, sort of Moby Dick era, and they managed to connect that ambergris came from inside whales. But to this day, people often describe it as whale vomit. As whales um, eat squid, there are certain parts of the squid that don't get digested, specifically the beaks and these things that they call the pins. And so they get impacted somewhere in the lower end of their intestinal tract, and the whale's producing a kind of oil to help cope with this ever-growing bundle of squid beaks. And either the whale passes this thing that can weigh 60 to 200 pounds through its anus, or the whale dies because it can't poop anymore. And so then the the various little sea animals come and eat the whale as it's dying, or it, it starts to decompose. And eventually, this hunk of ambergris is going to be released, and its density is lower than the sea. And so it floats to the top, and then it just bobs around in the ocean for an untold number of years or decades. And at some point, just by pure chance, it might end up on the, on a beach. And someone who is paying attention to the way that like some sepia-colored rock smells might find it, and then they can start to sell it in the open market. And some recent sales of ambergris have netted um, over a million dollars. There was one, I think, in 2014 that was sold for $3 million. What a pleasant story. <laughs> <laughs> Do you love it? <laughs> I love it. There are people just out there searching for 100-year-old wads of undigested squid beaks. Hunters. They're called ambergris hunters. And so I talked to um, this perfumer. Her name is Elizabeth Gaines. And she has a perfume that uses real ambergris. Her company is called Strange Love. It's based out of New York. And I asked her if she had any trouble during the pandemic about getting stuff, any of her ingredients. And she said, yes, of course. Like, we've been sold out of our ambergris perfume for several months because we couldn't find any. We couldn't source it. We couldn't, we couldn't source the ambergris because 
for several months, people, because of the pandemic lockdowns, people weren't combing the beaches. Her ambergris hunter, which is this um, man uh, who splits his time between Somalia and England, apparently wasn't able to, people weren't out there on the beaches trying to find ambergris, whatever is, is washed up there. So for several months out of the pandemic years, she couldn't get even, you know, the tiny quantity that she needed in order to make this perfume. So they sold out for for quite some time. One of the least covered supply chain crises of the, of the pandemic. But it's a crisis. <laughs> like, I would never have thought that the beaches being locked down would have that impact. Okay, ambergris. This is going to be hard to top, Aurora. I do not know how you're going to tell me a better ingredient story from here. What is uh, What is your next ingredient that you find super fascinating? Okay, so the next one is oud, which is, um, it's a very woody kind of scent, and it's having a moment right now. It's in a lot of perfumes made by luxury perfume houses, and it's like a beautiful, warm, there's a bit of pungency in it, so it's very interesting. But oud happens to only grow in Southeast Asia, where I am even though it's a, it's a very, very central to sort of Middle Eastern culture. And oud comes from Aquilaria, a type of tree that grows here. But the, the actual resin that oud comes from is only from when, when this tree is wounded in some way, infected by some kind of mold. And then in order to sort of preserve itself and fight off this kind of attack on its life, it produces something called agarwood. And it's a resin that they, that they eventually extract, and then that turns into oud. And I read that some of the forests that have the most oud are the ones in Laos and Cambodia that were sort of part of this covert war in which two million cluster bombs were dropped in, in this border with Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And they wounded so many trees that these trees started producing agarwood in order to cope with being bombed, essentially. And so this horrible sort of, can we say it's a war crime? I think it is, produced this, you know, large quantities of this resin, which I thought was quite fascinating. And as luck would have it, here I am in Southeast Asia, so I thought I'd go and try to find what real oud smelled like. And I found a couple of open shops. The first one, I smelled it, and it just like, as soon as I smelled it, it was a Cambodian oud. It reminded me of being in the proximity of caterpillars. You know, it's just this instant sort of recollection, which for me in, meant being in foresty places where uh, my family had like a, a house when I was growing up. And then I smelled a few others. I tried on a few more. That very first one was um, suspiciously cheap. And after about 20 minutes, the, the more expensive ones uh, sort of softened into something sweet, less pungent, less sort of less aggressive to your sense of smell. And then the cheap ones started to smell like feces. That's, that was my little oud adventure. I'm Kira Bindram, and thanks for listening to The Best of the Obsession. Download the Hark app to hear more playlists of genius podcast moments.